And this week, we are honored to be joined by Rabbi Joel Levy, who is the Rosh Yeshiva of the Conservative Yeshiva in Jerusalem, where he is speaking today, and also the Rabbi of Kol Nefesh Masorti in London. A huge welcome to you, Rabbi Joel, and we look forward to exploring with you Mikates. Thank you, Simon. It's very nice to join you. So I'm going to to jump in and think about something, and then maybe you can help me think it through as we go into it. We're at the beginning of the Joseph cycle, which is the longest narrative arc in the Torah. It's like that cycle of the life of Joseph and all the adventures that he gets up to is a significant chunk of the book of Genesis. It begins here. The parasha begins, At the end of two years, and Joseph and Pharaoh is dreaming. And he's standing by the Nile. And he has these dreams about the cows. But I'm going to focus in at the start here on the word after which the Pasha is named, Mikates, at the end of two years. And that word is used a bunch of times. It, it, the root, Kuftsadi, it means something like the extremity of something or after something. Katsats means to cut into pieces. But Mikates Shnataim Yamir means at the end of a couple of years or after the conclusion of two years. That word is used in Genesis 4.3 by he Mikates. Yamim the at the end of the number of days when Cain brought his sacrifice. In Genesis 6:13, Kate's called Basar Balafanai, the end of all flesh comes before me. And in the flood narrative, we have Vahimi Kate's Arbaim Yom at the end of 40 days. So Mikates implies that something is coming to a conclusion, and it's a, and that's a significant moment. Something significant is happening after that two-year interlude. Joseph is languishing in prison at this point, at the end of the last parasha. So that route, the Kuftsadi route, jumps back out in the parasha when Pharaoh awakes from his dream. Vaikates paro in verse 4. And then the same word appears in verse 7. Vaikats paro vehine chalo. He wakes up with a start. Something comes to an end with Pharaoh after he's had his dreams. Now, Kuftsadi meaning to wake up. It doesn't just mean to awaken. It means to awaken when something's happened during the time that you've been asleep. And the awakening at the end of that period of sleeping is powerful and significant enough to sort of shock you in some profound way. So the people to whom that word is applied by cats, who sort of, and he ended his sleep, reached the conclusion of his sleep and jumps awake. Noah, when he's drunken and his children take advantage of him, wakes up in that way. Jacob, after he's had his dream of the angels going up and down the ladder, Vaikats Yaakov, Mishnatov, Jacob wakes up at that point with a start, Vaikats. And then these examples of Pharaoh, and there aren't many examples of someone waking up in that kind of way, but there's also a couple in the book of Judges, Samson, when he wakes up, having had his hair trimmed, wakes up with some kind of start, with something new has happened, something has entered into his life that's completely new. So they all involve a major shift in your life based on something occurring while you're asleep. And, and when you wake up, there's a, a coming to terms with a new reality that takes place, which is signaled by that word. And that's the word that the parasha is also in some way connected to too. Nikates, Vaikats. The Jacob's dream 
ויקציה עקוב משנתו, ויאמר אכן יש אדוני במקום הזה, ואנכי לא ידעתי, it's a good case study of that, he starts awake and, and he says, אכן, וואו, אכן means something like, oh, wow, something's happened to me that, that I didn't understand and it's going to change everything. Aviva Zornberg talks about that verse, about Jacob waking up after the dream, she talks about it as a moment of coming to terms with your own ignorance, the sense of not knowing, and the awakening, there's different types of awakening that can take place in our lives, but the awakening that takes place in Jacob's life is the awakening that takes place when you realize your own ignorance. A quote briefly from Aviva Zornberg, he has brushed against a knowledge that could only arise from the way of ignorance. In such profound shifts of experience, the revelation is the not knowing, the sense of previous darkness itself intimates a dawning light. In a startled moment, Jacob realizes the shape of his own ignorance. And I think that's the connotation of cats in all those contexts, like for Pharaoh to wake up and to not know and to be suddenly have his attention drawn to his own ignorance is a shocking moment of awakening for the man God, Pharaoh. And there's something about the, the revelation of not knowing as opposed to the revelation of knowing, which I'd like to focus in on, and I'm happy to have a conversation in that direction. There's moments that shift us in our lives when we decide that we know something. And there's other moments that shift us in our lives when we decide that we don't know something, that we don't, that don't understand something. The light that comes from darkness is the way that Aviva Zornberg talks about it. I think that's very profound. I guess the way I read religion, the starting point for a religious quest is often, it's not knowing, it's not knowing. It's the shock of not knowing. And that's the connotation of that word. And we tend to maybe have religion upside down when we think that the source of religion is our comprehension of the world, as if religion is really bad science. It's about, it's about understanding the way things are and coming up with a, a theory about the way things are and then believing that theory. Whereas... I think that the religious journey is often the exact opposite. The religious journey is often about waking up to what we don't understand about the surprisingness of existence. And the journey into not knowing is the religious journey. I, I wonder if, just picking up on that, if, as you say, the moment of revelation, true revelation, is about a waking up to unknowing. Hmm. But in trying to then codify that to try and bottle that and yeah. capture it that that is where things go wrong and that then tries to bottle that moment in a way which can't be bottled at the same time that's also how things become in codifying that's the hope of passing on what that moment's about there is a theory of religion We're all kind of captured post-Maimonides by a version of religion which is propositional. We think that religion is captured by truth claims. And then your job in religious life is to kind of assess whether you believe those truth claims or not. And you decide whether you're a religious person on the basis of whether the propositions which are proposed by religion are ones which you intellectually agree. But there's an understanding of religion which rejects that entirely, which began, I think, with a German theologian guy called Schleiermacher, end of the 18th century, who's a romantic. And he says, religion proper has no dogma. Religion is about an encounter with the divine. And the record of that encounter comes out in dogma. 
but the encounter is what we call religion. So the, it's the encounter with God that's religion. And the writing down of the proposition shouldn't be taken too seriously because the purpose of the record of revelation is to regenerate the encounter. It's not in any way to capture something which has propositional value. That's a very different take on what religion is. That became a kind of popular way of thinking about religion in the 20th century as well. It lends itself to a way of thinking about religion that allows us to bridge maybe some of the theological divides that have torn the world apart over the last couple of thousand years. Because if the records that we have of people who've had religious encounters are mere attempts to recreate the encounter, they shouldn't be taken too seriously in a propositional sense then I might be able to sit down with a Catholic and say, tell me about the encounters you've had with God. And he'll say, you know, it comes out in this weird theology about Jesus, but really it's all about some kind of counter with infinity. And I can say the same thing, which will allow us to maybe see that both of us are leading religious lives, which tend towards the same experience, because it places experience at the centre as opposed to abstract theology or propositional theology. Just to pick up on the recent trend of thought, I think that a lot of our tools, instruments, texts are very much about carrying the record of those encounters. I think that's what the prayer book is. I think that's what our weekly cycles are, our our annual cycles are are about. Hmm. The question is whether we're prepared to put our hands on our heart and say it has no propositional content. Meaning something like, when I say the Shema, say, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. So I can say, if I'm thinking kind of propositionally, propositionally, then I'm I'm saying, well, I believe in one God. There is one God. When I say that, it has meaning. I'm referring to something in reality that has a truth to it. When I say it, I'm relating what I believe to what I actually think happens in reality. But if you're going down the path of of Shliemacher, then... To say the Shema is something like the words that I use to evoke a certain experience of encounter with the divine. But I'm not making any claim about the existence of God or, or, or anything else. I'm not making a theological claim at all. I'm, the words are simply there to evoke an encounter. Um, there's a reason to you say the words. It's not that you're then exempt from saying the words. It's that the purpose of the words is not to relate to cognitive claims. It's to evoke an experience I think also it's important, and it's interesting that you reference the Shema, because the baggage that we come to with the words, important as the words. And in referencing, as you did, the translation of the Shema, like the biblical scholars would say that there's no inherent monotheism in those words. Historically, one could argue that there's definitely a henotheistic reference. And yet those very same words have been used in century after century to evoke different conceptions. And one can also argue in reciting those words like many different and very conflicting propositional truth claims. That's undoubtedly true. That is undoubtedly true about the Shema. You know, it's the rabbis who carved out the Shema and turned it into a significant part of the liturgy. Like in that hyper-literal reading of that they that they tend to do in the Bashafbatavakumecha when you lie down and when you rise up, you're supposed to talk Torah. And they say, well, it's the actual the Torah you have to talk, it's these words, it's the actual words of the Shema itself. And they turn it into a piece of liturgy. And then it shaped Jewish religious experience through its carving out into a piece of liturgy. The question is, like the way that you framed it was also it's also propositional, meaning 
yes, you think you're right. The Shema appears to be, or at least it's tentatively rooted within the non-monotheistic culture. And yet it's used as a kind of pinnacle of monotheism. And so the meaning of it in terms of referent is it shifts over time. But the what, what Schleiermacher would claim is that actually none of that matters because the, it's the encounter that's really evoked. And the purpose of the piece of liturgy isn't theological, really. It's experiential. And so you have to say it because you're trying to generate something about that experience, which then carries on over time, like the words are meant to generate the experience. This is a form of negative theology, because if you assume that religion is based within not knowing as opposed to knowing, then it's that encounter with wonder which lies at the heart of religious experience. And then you have to have all these structures that recreate that sense of unknowing. So the encounter of Jacob, his dream, where he wakes up and says, well, God is here, I didn't know. And that's it. You're trying to regenerate that sense of an encounter with the unknowing, the cloud of unknowing. And you're driven by the unknowing and not by the knowing. But your religious life is then motivated by unknowing and not by knowing. We're not linked onto certainty in the same way. But there is a problem. I think the way that you asked the question was actually was astute in that, well, what about all this stuff that we do believe? And what about all the theological stuff? What about patiently working through what you believe and actually hammering it out and having the courage to actually articulate what it is that you really do believe in. And like Louis was, Rabbi Jacobs was very much into actually having the courage of your convictions and saying what you believe and putting it on the table and putting it out there and then and then chunking through it and actually daring to do that. That's the Maimonidean approach, I think, actually. What do I believe in? Like, you know, Maimonides was propositional in the sense that you know, it has to be meaningful to say Shema Israel, Adonai, Adonai, has to be, has to relate to something I actually believe in. And they, therefore, you'd be better damn well articulate what you believe in, so that when you say those words, they're meaningful, you're not recounting a lie. It's just, I wanted to bring a, an understanding of religion that comes from a completely different angle. Putting those two together is actually, I think, quite difficult. So, I mean, I think, I think trying to understand how you link together a kind of logical, propositional model of religion with an experiential, expressive kind of version of what religion is for Holding those two together is actually, I think, quite complicated. Coming back to the text and the several places that you reference, the the verb from Genesis and it being utilised in reference to Jacob and Pharaoh and others, do you think that it's significant but many places in the opening book of the Hebrew Bible that it's yeah. referenced. How significant do you think that is for us today and in understanding this kind of heritage? I, I think that if you want to understand the meaning of a word in the Bible, the first thing you do is kind of dictionary search, or a sort of cross-reference search through the Tanakh to see how that word is used in multiple places. And it's often the case that words are used inconsistently because they reflect different traditions or different authors or so but in this case, there is a consistency. Like when Pharaoh wakes up, when he kind of wakes up from his sleep, there is a constant line about what that verb means. In each of the encounters where people do wake up in that way, something happens to them in the night, which is a dream experience. It's a sort of a nighttime experience. Like Noah wakes up after being drunken and being uncovered and something has happened to him and he wakes up and it's like, there's a revelation of what something that happened to him when he was subconscious, when he was not conscious. And Jacob as well. And Jacob wakes up and says, God was here and I didn't know it. Rashi says on that, maybe if he had known, he would never have gone to sleep in that place. Like There's some things where if you know what's going to happen, you would never do it. 
there's things you have to let yourself have experiences and it's good not to know what's going to happen to you because you just got to get through it you just got to do those things and pharaoh too like this is a massively shocking experience for pharaoh when he wakes up so i think there is consistency so that's just solid how do you understand the hebrew bible if you come across a word then how do you explore what it means the first thing to do is to see how it's used in multiple other places and in all those cases it involves something happening a revelation through not knowing a revelation of an encounter which for pharaoh in our parsha the shock and disgust of not knowing how to understand what's happened in his own head is huge that's what drags up joseph from the dungeon is that pharaoh is so disturbed vatipa emrukhol is like his heart is beating his being is throbbing and he's completely distraught and is that revelation of his own unknowing that then is the next step in Joseph's journey that brings him up from the dungeon and and ultimately places him second in command to the Egyptian crown maybe just finally it's interesting the the importance of sleep seems to be yeah. a very contemporary concern mm. Matthew Walker's book on the subject the pandemic leading people to maybe discover sleep in a new way without the barrage of daily life that has seemed to resume pretty quickly i wonder what the biblical importance of sleep mm. and for us today is mm. that's interesting i don't know how to frame it. i think it's possible to frame it in terms of the three or four different narratives that we touched on today in terms of where you awaken and something's happened from a freudian perspective there is some sense here that it's not that everything happens when you're conscious it's that things can happen when you're not conscious in the sense of i mean it's upsetting because it it, it implies going beyond and maybe that ties into the theme we've been playing with a bit as well that like a lot of things in life just can't be worked out with your rational bit you just can't work them out i don't think that great chunks of your life can be worked out with your rational self when you get married you never have enough information to make that decision it's never a rational decision to get married it's always going to involve a leap of overcommitment to someone who doesn't deserve it and it's also going to involve some full overcommitting to me and i certainly don't deserve it so in that sense it's a leap of something and oftentimes i think that comes from somewhere really deep inside your kishkas of thinking that's the right leap to make at that point in my life in order for me to be the person i need to be it's more like an unconscious thing than a conscious thing i'm loving watching my elder daughter thinking about partnering up and thinking about who she wants to be with and she's shooting from the hip which you have to do as a kid you've not got enough to go on it's harder to make these decisions if you think they're rational because they're really not they're just like it's so intuitive and that's what's going on in these narratives as well there's something happening at night something happening when you're asleep there's something that the major shifts in these narratives are taking place at night when you're asleep that's amazing that's really really interesting that's really interesting it happens in the dream world it happens in the dreamscape and not in the real world and it's that place where there is no propositional truth and i'm also conscious that you're married to a musician that's true one a wonderful musician yeah. who and and the world of music as with the dream state i guess is yeah. also beyond and what we don't do in the world of music is insist that it has propositional value we don't go to a concert and ask ourselves any question about its rational value or what it meant or something like it it just is what it is 
music has its own reality. We, we don't insist that what you said when you said that maybe theology is the translation of experience into dogma or something like that. That's what Schliermacher says. He says, religion proper is not dogma. Religion is the encounter and it's translated into dogma. What we don't do in a musical context is translate musical experience into dogma. We just allow a concert to be what it is. And we know how to do that. It's amazing that we know how to do that. We all go to a concert or we listen to a piece of music and we're just prepared to do it and not think that it has to be translated into something which has rational value or propositional value. And maybe we're allowed to do that with religion as well, where we don't, we're not thinking in order for this to be a coherent experience, it has to be translated into some other, something else in order for it to be coherent. Maybe it's enough to it to be what it is. Maybe, you see what I'm trying to say? Sounds good. And Rabbi Joel, thank you so much for sharing those wonderful thoughts and yeah. starting with Miketz and going beyond and beyond. And we very much look forward to welcoming you back, hopefully. Thank you. That was a pleasure. Nice to see you. If you like this podcast, please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, find out all about the exciting content that we have for you at our mothership at jewishquest.org. We look forward to seeing you again next week.